Today I'm speaking with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who probably needs no introduction to most of you. He's an astrophysicist and cosmologist and author and a very prominent communicator of science to the public. He recently hosted the Cosmos series, the reboot of Carl Sagan's very famous series. And I think I originally met Neil at those Salk Institute Beyond Belief conferences about 10 years ago. Some of you have seen the videos of those online. But we haven't seen much of each other since then. He occasionally sends me an email, which he did prior to this podcast. But in good podcast form, we barely cover the topic that occasioned his coming on the podcast. There was so much more to talk about. And we barely scratched the surface of our mutual interests. And I think this podcast may leave you wanting more. It left me wanting more. And hopefully there'll be more to come. But here's the first two hours of me talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson. Enjoy. Okay, well, I have Neil deGrasse Tyson on the line. Neil, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sam, it's great, great to be on. Like, you don't call, you don't write, you know? <laughs> well, I, I occasionally write. <laughs> to me. <laughs> well, well, listen, this, this happened quite organically. This was great because I was obviously, maybe not obvious to you, but obvious to me and I think obvious to all of my listeners who requested it. I was obviously planning to invite you on the podcast, but then you just emailed me out of the blue reacting to something you heard on one of my least successful podcasts and you, you offered some advice by email and it was just a natural segue into twisting your arm and, and having you on. So thanks for coming on. And I, I look forward to getting into everything that we uh, are mutually obsessed by. Yeah, I mean, and I'm impressed you had the time to read at least uh, what I had to send your way. Uh, I guess I, I was noticing just how frequently you're being raked over the coals by people who are chapter and verse, you know, Talmudically analyzing your words, but some words and not others. And the balance of the message is, gets altered. And and it seemed like at times everyone is, is speaking past one another. And I just thought I might be able to throw in some, some suggestions. Yeah, yeah, well, um, that, that, if we that would be awesome. If we part of our lives in, in the public eye, then that, that uh, we could have something to share. Yeah, well, but before we get into that, I think that's going to be fascinating and, and useful. This is almost certainly unnecessary. I think most of my listeners are as aware of you as they are of me at this point. But for those few who aren't, how do you describe what you do? And just to give us a, a brief sense of how you spend your time in the world. Yeah, that's a, a great question because it's, I, I don't even know if I can answer that with any coherence of late, but I'm fundamentally an astrophysicist. It's how I think, it's how my brain is wired. And uh, I have this delusional, uh, this delusional thought that after I write all the books that I want to write and do the TV that I can do, that I'm going to go back to the lab <laughs> <laughs> and it's just escape back to the lab and and publish papers again. But in the meantime, um, <clears throat> I've spent a good fraction of my professional life bringing the universe down to earth, in a sense. And uh, one of the ways that has been most successful, I have found, is if I lace science onto this scaffold that we might call pop culture. And because you don't have to build that scaffold, it's already there, ready to be clad. And once you find a place to insert science, then the science can be immediately absorbed because people care deeply about their pop culture icons and ideas and thoughts. And just the simplest example I can give is during the Super Bowl, 
you can't get more pop culture than that. Everybody's watching the Super Bowl. I'll just take the time to tweet any bit of physics that comes to my mind as I'm watching the game. Uh, physics of the momentum of, of linebackers, the, the spiral stabilized throw of a quarterback. Um, and in one particular playoff game, there was a kick, a, an overtime field goal winning kick that hit the left upright of the goalposts and went in for the win. And I said, wait a minute, what's the orientation of that stadium? I checked quickly and I ran a quick calculation. And I, I felt confident enough to tweet that that score was enabled by a third of an inch deflection to the right due to Earth's rotation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just the Coriolis force of Earth's right. rotation. Right. And so that was fun to calculate. And But people like lost their minds. They're like, wow, I didn't know that. Okay. And then went on to the, 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 the websites. And, and it's, it's, it's reaction functions such as that that remind me that people can care about science in ways you might not have imagined, provided it's properly or 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 um, playfully folded into the pop culture they already care about. Yeah, and obviously we're going to get into areas of science affecting the public interest that are that are far more consequential than field goals. But a little bit more on on your place in the world at the moment. What what are you currently working on? Because you have your own podcast and. If I'm not mistaken, you're taking that on television in the fall. Is that do I have that right? Yeah. So uh, thanks for mentioning that. So we've had a podcast called well, it was a radio show called Star Talk, and uh, it began about five or six years ago on a grant from the National Science Foundation. And the experiment was: can we make a viable product, radio product, bringing science to the public, to people who? either don't know that they like science or know that they don't like science. Is that even possible? And that's what started this pathway into pop culture. So we inverted the normal Science Friday model where you have a journalist interviewing a scientist. And in this particular case, I am the interviewer, I'm the scientist, and my guest is hardly ever a scientist. It's a famous actor, actress, a a, um, an inventor, an explorer, a singer, a performer. And the conversation explores any science that may have touched that person's life. If not, then do they have a secret geek underbelly that we can rub? Often people, you know, maybe they're science fiction fanatics or they, they love superheroes or any, any of the topics that would be fair game at a Comic-Con. Do any of them have these kinds of leanings? And what happens is, since they are hewn from pop culture, they bring a fan base to this conversation, that, a fan base that wouldn't otherwise have an excuse to listen to science. And then in that conversation, they get fed science as it matters to the person they care about. And we started this out. It became very successful very quickly. And over several years, the grant money ran out, but then we became commercially viable. And that was the intent. And then we got noticed by National Geographic Channel, and then we jumped species, and now we're also... On, on television. And so we're going to our second season this fall. Well, that's great. I, li I like that model. Oh, and by the way, the model is a little more subtle than that. If we get an act, you know, typically an actor might have an interest that touches science, but of course they don't have the expertise necessarily in that topic. They could be pro-environment or anti-this or pro-that. And that comes out in the interview. But what we then do in studio, th th that's the base interview. Then we cut that into a, into a, a, a show where in studio we bring in an academic expert on that topic. 
So the best example here was uh, I interviewed uh, uh, President Jimmy Carter. And, you know, he's got this, uh, he's working heavily by ridding uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa of certain diseases that are peculiar to humans. And once you remove it from the last human, it'll never come back again because uh, it doesn't have the contagious vector. So he's speaking about this, but he's not an expert in that disease. We got a we, we got someone who's an expert in, in transmittable diseases to supplement comments that he made about the mission statement of his causes. So so this it turns out this has been working, and we even got a, a, an Emmy nomination for best informational programming this past season. So we're all quite proud of it because it was got crafted and and molded and and assembled. But other than that, we're in conversation about whether we're going to do another Cosmos, because uh, I hosted the, that 21st century. Yeah, um, that was reboot. huge. Yeah, yeah. It was a very big, and I aired on Fox in primetime, and then scattered around the world on the National Geographic Channel. So science, I'd like to think that science is trending in some way, at least among some demographics. How much did Cosmos bump up your profile? I mean, you, you were already quite famous before that, but has it changed your day-to-day -day interaction with the public? Uh, so that, that's a great question. So there, there, are, there, are, there are numerical ways to assess this. One of them is how many times a day does a complete stranger come up to me and say, aren't you the guy, aren't you? There's that, that's a number, and that, and that changes, right? Another number is just purely how many Twitter followers do you have? That's sort of a monotonically increasing function for anyone, because rarely do you unfollow someone on Twitter. And so during Cosmos, the, the, the Twitter numbers bumped up, but by maybe 10% or so, not like 50% or 100%. And so it was, I think a lot of people who watch Cosmos already knew me and already followed. So, and I think that's a stronger statement than if it was just some spontaneous spike, because it means it was kind of sort of earned. People are coming on, they see retweets, and, they, and, and it's kind of the, the slow build I think is a stronger number at the end of the day. And by, by contrast, when Charlie Sheen announced he would be on Twitter, 24 hours later, he had a million followers. They're not following him because of the tweets he had posted. They're following because they're, they're fans of his or they want to see him crash and burn, wh whichever. And so the, my Twitter following, however, has been very slow but real. And I, I like that because it meant that people are responding to the tweets themselves. Well, and it's great to see your platform grow by whatever metric because you are so good at publicly communicating science. And I think there are people who are cynical about that role when, when a scientist assumes it. You know, I think they're, they're, undoubtedly there are scientists who attack you as a, a mere popularizer of science. I mean, they, they did the same thing to Sagan. They do the same thing to Steven Pinker. Well, let me just put that to you. How much does that noise even show up on your, your radar? That's a great question and an important question. And I can say, let me just say, I benefit from the fact that Carl Sagan sort of did this first. And he sort of cleared the brush and bramble. And, you know, there's blood on the tracks from him having done this in a way that no one had even approximated before. So now here I am on a partially, if not mostly cleared field. And I get to operate without what I'm doing surprising people. That's the, the first point. A second point, and this is I take this very seriously. Uh, how do I retain this respect of my colleagues? Let me assume for the moment that the respect is still there. Because <laughs> would they tell me directly? I, I don't know if they no longer respect me. But what I do know is that 
I, have developed, I live in New York City, which is the news gathering headquarters of the United States. And even CNN opened an office here, having only ever been in, in Atlanta. So everybody's here. Whenever there's a late breaking news story, let's say the gravity wave was discovered a few months ago or the Higgs boson, I, I, my phone rings off the hook. And what I say to the press is, especially the, the TV media, I say, uh, have you spoken to the people who actually did this work yet? They'll, no, 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 we just want you to get, tell us what was discovered and why. I said, no, speak to them first. These people worked for decades, finally getting a result. It's their time in the sun. Talk to them, then come back to me, and I'll be happy to tie a bow on it. Okay, and I've actually cultivated this relationship with the national media based here in New York, and that's precisely what they do. So if you look at news stories of major, major scientific discoveries that overlap my interest and my expertise, um, if I come in, it's at the end, and I say what the discovery means or its significance. And in that way, I think all, t the t all boats rise in the tidewaters. And I can't be criticized for that if, by my being a part of that story, brings more attention to their work. And so I've been very careful about that. And as a result, I still every now and then get invitations to do a year sabbatical at prestigious institutions. And I don't think that would happen if somehow people felt that I was, uh, I was a loose cannon out there. Right. I don't think people are aware of how much heat Sagan took for this. I might not even be aware of most of the details, but I just know in the abstract that he got fairly hammered by his colleagues for his role as a communicator of science. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so it happens on many dimensions. I mean, some of it is just what is the, what is the state of social maturity of the academic field? And even his closest collaborator for the original Cosmos, uh, Steve Soder, who was also co-writer of the Cosmos that I co-writer with Andrewian of the Cosmos that I hosted, he, at the time, back in the 70s, when Carl Sagan was invited to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, he thought it would be a mistake. How could you do this? This is entertainment. This is not news. He's a comedian. This is it. You'll be destroying science. And, and once that got unfolded and Johnny Carson turned out to be a fan of science and of skepticism, and all of a sudden... Uh, <laughs> uh, members of Congress would hear from their constituents, oh, I think maybe we should do more science. Wait, is that the science that I saw on TV last night? Good, let's do that. And all of a sudden, funding streams would increase. And so my field, the, the, the ast astrophysics field, we were kind of early out of the box on this, and we did recognize ultimately, even in spite of the blood on the tracks, that it's a good thing for science, for people who in the end paid for the science, through the national science tax monies that fund NASA, the National Science Foundation, and other sort of government agencies that serve this in the biology field. Of course, it's the National Institutes of Health, this sort of thing. If they're paying for it, at some point, they ought to know what you're doing. And if you can be good at that, then everybody benefits. So my field, I think we're, we're, we've matured past that. And now we can celebrate one another who have given some of their lives to, again, like, as I said, bring the universe down to Earth. And resistance to this seems to me to be short-sighted and confused on 
at least two levels, a resistance to the public communication of, of science or the, or the stigma that attaches to a scientist who spends a lot of time or even most of his time doing this. Because one, as you say, we, we want a scientifically informed public. And I think it's, it's pretty easy to see the price we pay for people's scientific ignorance on you know, climate change or any other topic that is, is socially and politically divisive at the moment. But also there's just this idea that there's, a, there's some kind of clear boundary between the context in which you can make original and useful contributions to scientific thought. It's though in the covers of a 300-page book, all you could possibly be doing as a scientist is selling out, whereas in, in a, the context of a journal article that only 300 people are going to read, there you're doing real science. And, I mean, this demarcation may make a little sense in... In pure mathematics, for instance, because you know no one, no one's going to publish your theorem proof widely, <laughs> and you're not going to put it on PBS or um, <laughs> you know your next your next show. But for for most of science, you have people like, as I mentioned, Steven Pinker, who, in the context of a book, is saying scientifically edgy and original things. And it's not mere, I mean, the, the, the boundary between communicating science to the public and doing science in the act of, you know, just thinking out loud about data, I mean, there is no clear boundary between those things. Yeah, there shouldn't be, I think. And in, in, in my field, we have the, it's just a fact. I, 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 I don't know, do I judge it as a positive or negative? It just is that when we make discoveries, there's huge public interest in them. If we discover a new black hole, a new exoplanet, a new, you know, organic molecules in space, the, the edge of the universe, the multiverse, our topics tend to be more ripe for public absorption than what I have found to be true in other fields, except, say, for perhaps medicine, where people's health and well-being are directly affected by discoveries. And so, and also our content feeds very smoothly into the into movie making and the storytelling of of science fiction and our vocabulary is actually we shouldn't underestimate the value of a tractable vocabulary as part of formal lexicon consider that the official name the official term for the beginning of the universe is big bang that's the official term and what how about this region of space you fall in and you don't got, black hole right so light doesn't come out black hole we, we, we have this trove of single-syllable words that are actually official in our field that are just fun for the public to follow. So that when I'm describing new discoveries, there isn't this smokescreen of lexicon that you have to get through just to even hear the idea that I'm trying to put on the table. The idea be becomes, the, the, the idea is laid bare immediately because the words don't get in the way. So, and, and many of those topics, as you point out, are not, I mean, they're certainly not politicized. I guess the Big Bang, if you reach back far enough uh, into our confusion, that the Big Bang becomes politicized, <laughs> or you, you could just say it happened 6,000 years ago. <laughs> but you communicate, I think you communicate on some more highly charged issues as well. I mean, so is climate science something you're, you're touching or have touched well, in great, recent years? Uh, thanks for bringing that up. I... I don't present myself as a climate expert. There are plenty of climate experts out there. So when the press calls me and says, what do you think of that storm brewing in, in the Caribbean? And I'll say, call a climate expert. What are you calling me? And yes, I could comment on it, but I won't because you have – what I'm trying to do is spread the, the, the Rolodex base 
of who they would call when they need commentary. Now, when you take a step back from that and they ask, tell us about our responsibility as citizens on planet Earth, then there's the larger stratospheric, the, the cosmic perspective on it that I'm delighted to bring to the dialogue. And so, but people, I'm, I'm a visible target and people know how to find my Twitter stream. And so people who are climate deniers will try to fight that. But I try to always take the high road. I'm not interested in fighting you in the trenches. So for example, I had a tweet recently that did very well if you measure it by retweets. And it was, uh, I just had to put it out there. I said, if you, uh, uh, a skeptic is someone who doubts the claim and is convinced by evidence. And a denier is someone who doubts the claim and doubts the evidence. Mm. <laughs> so, so something like, I think my tweet was better constructed than that. And I put that out there because in the trenches is let's fight about climate change. No, I think as an educator, I can help train your mind how to think about information and how to process information and how to arrive at conclusions. Because this, this is the, the ways and means of what science is and how and why it works. Then you're empowered. And then you, you, you can make whatever politically leaning decisions you must, but have them anchor on objectively verifiable science. That's my goal. But that's why you don't see me debating people. I, I just, I don't have the time or the patience. I'd rather just educate you in the first place so that the debate is, isn't even necessary. So how political do you view your job in this sense? Because I'm hearing that there are certain things you don't want to talk about, not because you don't have an don't have a position on them or that you're not, you don't feel yourself qualified to be the one talking about it necessarily. I mean, I take your point about climate science, but if I push hard enough, you have a view on it that you don't feel unqualified to express, all the while admitting that you are not the one doing original work in climate science. Yes, that's correct. And, and I, I will gladly state that when asked. It's just not, I, I don't have a climate change platform. Right. That I occupy that I'm so in fact I don't occupy any platform as, at all as far as I can tell and this frustrates some people because they want to attack me based on platform versus platform and I'll, I'll just give you an example the uh, after cosmos uh, I was uh, some months after cosmos I was like the cover story of the national review mm. there was a caricature of me on there and by the way, I didn't think I'd gained that much weight right. <laughs> between what I actually look like. The cartoonist hand adds 20 pounds. <laughs> I know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not the, you know, I'm the buff guy I was, once was, but okay, fine. Uh, in there, I became really the, the effigy to be burned, the, the, the liberal effigy to be burned by the article, uh, by, the, by the, the cover story article. And... On my vest, because that's my trademark vest with the moons and planets, they had buttons representing every single liberal cause that's out there. So there's the gay rights button and the women's lib button and the anti-GMO button. And, the, and, and I'm looking at it and I say, wow, like I've hardly ever said anything about most of those subjects. And in fact, the little bit that I have said about GMO, I was telling people to chill out because every organ, practically everything you eat 
that you acquire from a grocery store is a genetically modified version of something that sometime long ago was natural. And so, you know, everything's been genetic. Milk cows, you know, everything. Big plump strawberries, oranges. And somehow people have drawn what they think is a genuine, yet it's arbitrary line, between food that is natural and food that is not. I just made this point. Uh, by the way, that point is not even pro-GMO or anti-GMO. I'm, I'm, I'm teaching people that we as a culture have been genetically modifying organisms for tens of thousands of years, period. Now, take it, do, do, you, you still want to be against scientists genetic, mod, genetically modifying organisms? Go ahead, but understand, understand what the foundation is or isn't of that argument. And then I go home. I'm not going to debate you. Right, right. Well, so I'm, I'm just wondering, though, if you feel a, a need that, for instance, you know, I don't feel or you know, certainly someone like Richard Dawkins doesn't apparently feel to preserve a kind of political neutrality on certain questions because you serve in a role that is, I mean, so for instance, I've noticed you've, you've been on presidential commissions, you know, science commissions over the years. Do you feel that you need to kind of walk a razor's edge between political passions and polls on questions of religion or, you know, hot button issues of kind of culture war, science, evolution, et cetera, because you're trying to preserve a, a kind of trust from both sides insofar as that's possible? So that's a great, very pointed question. So I, I have, I'm going to unpack it into several variables and if I get distracted in myself, just get me back on track. So, so um, initially I thought I was walking a razor's edge because I'm not out here to just offend anybody. I just want to enlighten people as an educator. That's, I have no other objective in this. And I thought that was a razor's edge initially. And then I realized, no, it's not, actually. It's a rather strong position. And that position is there are objective truths out there that you ought to know about. And I, as an educator, have some, some, I don't want to call it an obligation, let me say a duty to alert you of those objective truths. What you do politically in the face of those objective truths is your business, not my business. I have opinions on many things, but they're not the kind of opinions where I give a rat's ass if you agree with my opinion. That's why it's my opinion. And that's the difference. That's the difference between me, I think, and many others who are scientifically uh, astute or, or the scientists themselves, and then take on a platform that involves trying to get people to see the world the way they do, even politically. I have no such interest in doing that. Let me just uh, apply a little pressure on that one point, though, because it seems to me that there's I mean, if the stakes are high enough, if, if the facts are clear enough and the consequences of maintaining one's ignorance in the face of those facts are dire enough, uh, you know, let's say climate change rises to that point. Let's say human-caused climate change is as disastrous as Al Gore thinks it is, right? And I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't feel especially cl close to the science here. The Al Gore index, yes. Y yes. Let's just say that it's as scary as the most scared person thinks it is. And we had good reason to believe that that was true. And now we're in the current environment of, of climate change denial that really has a, you know, correlates almost perfectly with where you are in the political spectrum. 
And, you know, you have a candidate like Trump who just gave, uh, I don't know if you heard his energy speech the other day or heard about it. No, I didn't. I, mean, I was traveling and I didn't hear it. Uh, so, you know, he apparently thinks that, I don't think he said this in his speech, he said this in a tweet, but his speech was quite in harmony with, with his tweet. He said at one point that climate change was a hoax cooked up by the Chinese to destroy our manufacturing base. And then he, you know, in his speech, he says he's going to get out of the, the Paris Accords and, and just ramp up coal production and bring back all the, all the coal jobs. And he's a denier of climate change or human-caused climate change. And so let's just say that the jury was not out on this question at all. And again, I'm not, you know, I think it's probably not out or is virtually not out, but let's just say it was even clearer than it is now to... 100% of those qualified to judge the facts, wouldn't you feel that, so then this position you've just sketched out of, I don't give a rat's ass what sort of opinions you have and what sort of public policies you want to enact on the basis of the science, doesn't that collapse? Don't you, wouldn't you then have a duty to say that, in this case, Trump is a dangerous ignoramus who's not qualified to be president? So, uh, again, there are a couple of variables there. One of them is, um, uh, you're conflating two two forces. One of them is that, um, uh, let me back up. So I've, I've never said anything against a politician. Why? Because politicians have electorates that support them. And in a free democracy, that is their right. I, as an educator, could go around hitting politicians on the head, but then there's the matter of all the people who wanted to vote for them. So for me, my target is not the politician. My target is the population who is following statements that are objectively false. I see it as my duty to train the electorate how to think about this information, period. And then once they're trained, they can vote for who they want. And so... What is that? This is like the people who said, oh, get George W. out of office. He's an idiot. He's this. And then he's finally out of office. And then Sarah Palin rises up. Oh, Sarah Palin, she's an idiot. I mean, how many times can you start saying that a leader is an idiot when, without looking at fellow members of your country who are voting for them? And as an educator, it is a task to educate people so that they can judge what is true and what is not. That's my role here. The easiest way to make the point, though, in many cases, is to push back its most egregious violation, right? So, it, like, if Trump gives this speech, you know, on the cusp of becoming elected president, the easiest way to talk about the consequences of the public's ignorance about climate change is to just push back against the, the speech itself. I mean, no, so for no, instance, no, because uh, then, then you're attacking him. Well, no, I know. So you're not attacking but, the idea. You're not attacking the fact that people don't understand the the facts. That should be. That's the thing. Otherwise, you're attacking their favorite person. You're attacking the fact that that in this case, a person who could well become president doesn't understand the facts, and and that's by virtue of the fact that millions of people who support him either don't know or don't care that they're wrong on this point. And for me, the longer term solution is training the electorate. That is that's for me. It's just that simple. And and by the way, it's not like I haven't. I've tweeted some pointed things. I mean, pointed for me, I suppose. For example, I said uh, it was my Jesus tweet, where I said, "Who would Jesus vote for?" Right. And this is back when we had you know a dozen 
uh, Republican candidates in the running, said, who would Jesus vote for? And I said, walls and torture are non-starters. So he'd probably vote for the Jewish New Yorker from Vermont. That's what I said. And I think that's probably an objectively accurate, theologically defensible statement. But what happened when I did that, because people are itching to get me to commit, the, the, the Sanders campaign started calling, oh, we, we just learned you're pro-Sanders. Can you go public on that so we can? It's like, no. I said Jesus was pro-Sanders. Pro <laughs> I didn't say I was pro-Sanders. Jesus was pro-Sanders. And so, so people will react as they do. But I I'm, want to train the electorate. That's my goal. So, so I guess what I was fishing for exists here, but it's, it has a slightly different focus. I, when I asked you about the political imperatives of your role and you, you're wanting to preserve your neutrality for both sides of the, the spectrum, I was thinking more in terms of the kinds of people you have to work with or at least talk to in government from time to time. But, but actually, it's more that you want to preserve your trusted neutrality as an educator to everyone in the country insofar as that's possible. Well, yeah, it's not so much that I want to preserve it. I just, uh, in the sense that I, it's my, for self-preservation, it's not how I think about it. I just think about it as, I, I, it's not, I, I guess I'm not being deeper than the simple statement that I'm an educator. And the moment you start choosing sides against things that are political, which is people's right to do in a free pluralistic society, the moment you start doing that, then anyone who is not in the political leaning is not going to listen to you. You'll be an asshole to them, and you just shut off half the people who you could be educating. Yeah, no, no, no. When I said you're preserving your your neutrality, I wasn't thinking you're preserving your reputation in their eyes. You're you're just preserving your effectiveness as a communicator insofar as that's possible. Yes, I think that's an accurate statement. And, um, uh, and let's, let's, take, uh, um, uh, let's take religion, for example. So here's something, I haven't written this yet, but I've said it multiple times and ways. Uh, people want me to sort of side up with the, the whole atheist movement and rid the world of religion and all of this. And, 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 and you, you, you know, you're the front of that train right there with your writings and, and your speeches. And I, I take a slightly different view. Uh, and I'm not as extreme. I mean, you're, you are on the frontier with terrorism and, and, and uh, com comparing one religion with another. And I, I, that's way out there for me. Where I, where I go and where I stop is I say, it does not matter to me what religion you are. Just know that your religion is a belief system and does not cue off of objective truths. Otherwise, we would call it science. And if you have a belief system, that belief system is constitutionally protected, and I don't have any problems with you holding that belief system, but the moment you hold office, where now you are making decisions that affect a pluralistic electorate, any laws you pass need to be based in objective reality. Otherwise, you are bringing a personal truth to bear on other people who do not share your personal truths. And that is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for revolution. And so I'm trying to, it's my way of saying that governmental decisions, policy, laws need to be secular in a country that preserves religious freedoms. 
Yeah. So yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I went out on Twitter yesterday, I think, just saying that I was looking forward to speaking with you and, and asking my Twitter followers what we should talk about. And this was probably the, probably no surprise to you, probably the most common question they raised, this lack of endorsement of the label atheist, you know, that you're not happily wearing this label. Uh-huh. I actually, you know, I have a talk I gave some years ago, I think entitled The, the Problem with Atheism, that I gave at an atheist conference. And as I've said before, it was the only talk I've ever given, certainly. I think it's the only talk I, I know about that started with a standing ovation and ended with booze and people leaving <laughs> the room. And it's and the the point of the talk was for me me pushing back against the label atheist. I, I said, we well, you know there's no reason why we have to meet in bad hotels around this variable of political atheism and call ourselves atheists. And we don't call ourselves non-astrologers. If astrology ever became ascendant in this country and people were making decisions on the basis of the position of the of the planets, well, then we would we would talk about reason and evidence and common sense and science to neutralize those claims without ever defining ourselves in opposition to astrology. And I think the same thing can be done with religion. And as just as as chance had it, you know, in my first book, which inducted me into the the small club of of the new atheists, the end of faith, I, I never even used the term atheist or atheism. And it's not that I withheld use of that term. I simply never it never occurred to me to use the term. I was just talking about the problems of of religion, the the, the opposition as I see it between reason and faith and science and and uh, untestable, unverifiable claims. And so the political variable of atheism, I find, it may have its moment historically. It may be necessary to, to some degree to, to shine a light on the, on the fact that you have a, you know, by and large, the smartest and most educated people in this society politically anathematized and marginalized. But I think there's a real weakness in the term but there is a difference. I think there, I, there's a difference between the two of us, at least in, in our public persona, which is I don't do anything to dodge the term. Because if someone asks me if I'm an atheist, I will go on to say, very likely, I will say how empty that term is. I mean, it has no philosophical content and it, it doesn't capture any of what interests me about, you know, quote, spiritual experience and things like meditation, et cetera. But I won't dodge the term because, it, but from the, from the view of, most religious people, I am an atheist. I think these books were, were merely written by people. And I mean, that's really all you need to be sure about to be an atheist from the Christian or Jewish or, or Muslim perspective. And so I, I, I'm wondering, based on, the, on this Twitter storm I got, I think somewhere you have called yourself an agnostic as opposed to an atheist. So I just want to ping you about that. Is that how do you relate to those terms? It's not even that I called myself an agnostic versus an atheist, is that if you require that I give myself a label, then the closest word I can come up with is agnostic, not atheist. And But I would rather have no label at all. So that greatly resonates with you, but perhaps for different reasons. What I object, the only ist I am is a scientist. Beyond that, a label is an intellectually lazy way to assert you know more about a person than you actually do, and therefore don't, don't have to engage them in a conversation. Oh, you're an atheist. Bam! Out in comes a whole portfolio of expectations of what you'll say, what your behavior is, what your attitudes are. And what I have found, by the way, 
hold aside dictionary definition of atheist, because that's actually irrelevant to me. It's irrelevant because the dictionary does not, act, does not define words. The dictionary describes words as they have come into meaning, at least in the English language, less so in French, I'm, I'm told, because they have like word bureaus that right, right. see your, your usage. Academy. So words, words are living things. And I have seen the conduct of outspoken atheists, and there is conduct they exhibit that I do not. And so if there's an emergent sense of what an atheist is, and that sense is being defined by those who are most visible, then I have to say there's, there's got to be some other word for me, but not that word. For example, for example, uh, this happened some time ago on my Facebook feed. There was a shuttle mission that went back when we <laughs> went into space with our own spacecraft. There was a shuttle mission that went up to repair the Hubble. I was friends with several of the astronauts on board. So I, I posted um, STS, I forgot what it was, 125, or what, I forgot the number. Uh, uh, STS uh, launches today, um, and I said, Godspeed, astronauts. Okay? That's what I said. People in the comment thread said, Godspeed, I thought you were an atheist. Okay? The very fact that I get that phrase often in people responding to something I say or do tells me that I'm not behaving in the way they expect an atheist to behave. Forgetting, again, the formal dictionary definition, we are talking about what is happening to that word today. And so, yeah, I use the word Godspeed because that's historical with the space program. And John Glenn went up, it was headlines, Godspeed, John Glenn. And Godspeed is not fundamentally different from goodbye. What was goodbye? You'd leave the city walls, God be with you, because it was dangerous out there. And God be with you got contracted over the years and it just says goodbye. I was at an atheist conference and I, I asked people in the room, who here uses the word, after I was raked over the coals for saying Godspeed. I said, who here uses the word goodbye? Everybody raised their hand. I said, did you know it meant God be with you? Oh, ooh, I, I didn't know that. Ooh. So, so now we have astronauts putting their lives at risk by going high speed. And then you have this corresponding term, Godspeed. I was perfectly happy to use that term and I'll use it again. Not only that, I use AD and BC when I'm referring to years. All right. The, the Gregorian calendar and the Julian calendar were amazing works of timekeeping. And credit should go where credit is due. And with the Vatican Observatory, which was founded around the time that Pope Gregory uh, made the measurements to establish the Gregorian calendar, give it to him. Give it up to him. I have no problems. Oh, I thought you were an atheist. I should use BCE. And, 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 and you know, so, so until there's a word that applies to me, that doesn't then have people saying, I thought you were an atheist. I'm happy to have no label at all. That's what's at the bottom of this. And that is for much shallower philosophical reasons than how much you thought about the word. Mine are just very plumb practical. Uh, you've actually thought really deeply about the word as applied to you. I, I think about the, the negative consequences of, of the label very much in the terms you do, but it, kind of from the other side. So if, if you would admit to being an atheist, what you have admitted to most religious people. I mean, this is a term that's given its meaning mostly within the echo chamber of religious dogmatists. They think they, they know a lot about you, 
based on your admission that you're an atheist. Yes, and I yeah. think mm -hmm. in this in this talk, I the analogy I drew is that it's it's almost like we you know you're in a, a debate with someone and you know they draw the outline of a body you know like from the police crime scene outline of a dead body on on the sidewalk and you just kind of walk up and lie down in it right <laughs> it's like it's just you conform perfectly to their expectations of just how clueless you must be of you know all the values and richness of experience that they know so much about in a religious context which is not at all true depending on the atheist you know i'm you know i'm an atheist who spent a lot of time exploring changes in my consciousness that most religious people think only religious people know about, right? You know, classically, you know, mystical states of consciousness with psychedelics or a long time spent on silent meditation retreats. There's different ways to change your, your mind and your brain. And it just so happens that only religious language has been applied to this historically. And if you say you're an atheist, you are almost by definition from the, the religious side, not necessarily from the atheist side, you are disavowing all of that as either just frank psychopathology or conscious fraud or something that just doesn't bear looking into. That's just, again, it's, it's a failure of communication, ultimately. But the price you are paying that I'm not paying, I think, in, in the atheist community, is you begin to either look kind of shifty or not altogether honest if you keep dancing around the term or using a, ter a term like I'm an agnostic as opposed to an atheist, whereas you would never say you're agnostic about Poseidon in the same way that you're tempted to say you're agnostic about the God of Abraham. That's why I don't even use the word um, agnostic. It's, it's been, I said, if you had to pick a word, then pick that word. But I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know that a word exists in in this context. And there are other things, and there are plenty of atheists who would even agree with what I'm about to say, but just all told, I just don't think it fits the model. Like my favorite musical of all time is Jesus Christ Superstar. And one of my favorite works of music is Bach's Mass in B minor, with Handel's Messiah a close second, and choral works, that is. And uh, I love going into churches and to mosques and 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 looking at the architecture and the artwork and the and the the detailed of the designs and the fact that all mosques are aligned with Mecca that's kind of an interesting fact and it's on a great circle path that would take you straight there there's just curiosities that and 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 this interest um th there you must know that there are atheists who just basically draw a line so I'm not even going there they're drawing gods with 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 divine births and halos and angels and cherubs and and I, and they 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 keep distance between themselves and that and I I can't do that. It's not in me to do that. Yeah, and the irony is, is it's not in any of the most prominent so-called new atheists. Dawkins, Dennett, and I at one point were all outed with our Christmas trees. <laughs> the New York Times published, you know, photographs of our uh, of each of us standing next to our Christmas trees. That's cute. <laughs> so it's it's just you know there are things that that have no religious connotation for us, but which have been the product of uh, religious either kitsch or profundity. Yeah, you know, I I love going in, into churches, and I don't go into many mosques these days for reasons that might be obvious for those who want to check my credentials here. You, you can look at my blog. The article, I believe, is entitled Islam and the Misuses of Ecstasy. I just go, go through it showing all of the, the resonances in the, the Muslim tradition that, that I find incredibly beautiful and powerful and 
Uh, so I'm not I'm not deaf to the charms of the call to prayer or to the poetry of Rumi or much of what is in the tradition. I just we need not touch this here, but I just see a political and civilizational cost to people's unwarranted certainties about all that, especially when their their certainties are by definition in zero-sum contests with the certainties of others. We have to get to a world where we are just interested in clear talk about the common project of human flourishing. Well, what I can say is that I, I bet neither you, nor Dawkins, nor Dennett has ever had uttered to them the phrase, I thought you were an atheist, based on some statement or comment that you've made. I bet that's never happened. Except when I, if someone sneezes near me and I say, God bless you, <laughs> which, which has been known to happen. So, because I get it maybe two or three times a month. And, you know, given the total following, that's small, sure. But the fact that it happens at all, uh, even when I put out my Jesus tweet where people thought I was endorsing Bernie, people said, uh, uh, what do you care what Jesus says? You're an atheist, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay, so again, people are not even allowing me to be me because they've drawn the, drawn the chalk outline on the pavement, like you say. And the limbs are not allowed to stick in a direction where the chalk isn't. What about race? Do you ever touch race in your public commentary? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I stopped doing it in 1991 when I was profiled, uh, that is, <laughs> media profiled, not least profiled. The good kind of profiling. The good kind of profiling in a PBS documentary called Breakthrough, subtitled The Changing Face of Science in America. And I was one of about a half dozen people who were uh, profiled. And I think it, uh, I was, we were filming as early as 91. It might have aired in 93. And that was the last time I agreed to do something where my skin color would be the reason why I w was asked to participate. There have been two occasions since then that have been YouTubed. One of them was at the, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in Maryland where they have a summer program of graduate students and they invited me to just chat with them about my experience in graduate school. And I can't do that without mentioning race. And so, but that got clipped and it's on YouTube and it, it, and it, it, it was, many people caught it. One other time, I was at a conference on, uh, what was it, on, I forgot the name of it, but someone at the end asked a question what about women in science? What's going on there? How come we don't see the numbers? And on the panel, I happen to be the only scientist. So I lead off by saying that while I'm not a woman, I've been black all my life. And so here's what I have encountered and the resistance that I've seen and that I'm here where I am because of an energy level to overcome the low expectations or the forces against me that are held up in the quest for me to achieve my goals. So if that's any indication of what women are experiencing, we have a long way to go. And you want to talk about whether there's some genetic reason or hormonal reason why women are in one field or another. Whatever that conversation is, you can't have that conversation until you have demonstrated that the, the social forces have been equalized. And I don't think people have been able to demonstrate that yet. So that's, all, that's what I said. Now watch what happened. That... I put that got YouTubed and it was up seven years ago, seven years ago or so. Then somebody reposted it like a year ago. 
And then it went viral, okay? It went, like millions and millions of people saw it because there I am talking about race. And they, don't, they hardly have anything else of me talking about race, right? Because this is not what I do. And then on Fox News, the five at five, they've got some thing there. Uh, my name came up and they all were reacting to me and my name. And it's, it's Fox News, so it's, it's news theater. And one of the guys says, Tyson, I hate that guy. Every time I turn around, he's talking about race and he's talking about how he had to struggle. And I'm thinking, oh, he must have only seen this one video and presumed that that's the majority of my output, when of course it isn't. So, so um, I, lately I just simply steer clear. I'm a scientist and, we, and that's what we deal with. Right. I'm tempted to steer you into it. <laughs> Uh, because you know, I I I, I want to hear. That's because you're Sam Harris. You're you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to, you know, be the the pebble in the shoe, the thorn in the thumb. But go on. Because I mean, frankly, you know, I would really want to hear what you think about race. I mean, you obviously have a unique vantage point, being one of the the very few famous black scientists, and and you know, race is is becoming. I mean, you, you know, the fact that the last thing you said about it was seven years ago suggest to me that there's a lot you might say about this moment now in our you know public conversation and when you when you look at the kind of pendulum swing the liberal community and, and college campuses have have executed of late where you have a kind of political correctness on campus where it's just every conversation about this and other charged topics is is just so heated that I mean now you in many cases you can't even have the conversation you have you know people just shouting down any unpopular opinion. It's racism and feminism both almost together in lately. Yeah. Um, so it's you know as an as an educator, it would be very interesting to hear your take on this. My sense of it is, the loudest statement I can make is to not ever mention it again. That's, that's and and it's not a cop out. It may sound like that. It's as long as I make it an issue, then people commenting about me will make it an issue. And but if it's not an issue, you have no there's no there's no fodder there for you to load your cannon with. So, for example, uh, there was a period there where people referenced me as an affirmative action baby. That if I were not black, no one would know who I was. And I, I thought that was in, an interesting uh, comment, uh, but I didn't respond to it because I, I I'd like to think I I'm above such levels of that's, that's getting into the trenches. And I don't have the time, energy, or the interest to fight people in trenches. But what I do know is that uh, ten, as recently as 10 years ago, there were taxis that would not pick me up going north in Manhattan. Harlem is north of where I might have been looking for the, for the taxi. As recently as about 10 years ago. There's still occasionally taxis that don't pick me up, but this is a numerically measurable thing. And so it used to be... Two out of five taxis wouldn't pick me up. Now it's one out of ten won't pick me up. Now that might be more cosmos than than cultural progress. <laughs> well, I thought about that, but I, you know, I can wear a hat and glasses. I have various disguises. The problem is I can't wear a, a mustache because I already have a mustache, <laughs> so it doesn't work as a disguise. Uh, so I, I try to gauge whether it's cosmos, and those numbers change smoothly before, during, and after cosmos. So that's why I'm pretty sure cosmos does not. Um, uh, did not affect it there. And not only that, there'd be people coming up to me and they say, oh, you're the smartest black person I know, 
or you should be a role model for the black children, right? This was, I was getting that 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now, that's not what is said. People say, so I want you to be a role model for my kid. And the kid is a, you know, a blonde white girl, right? And the, so there has been a real and measurable shift. And I have not made race an issue, and neither has the emergent population who has learned science from me, neither have they made this an issue. And I can say this, one of my great disappointments was I was on stage with Richard Dawkins on a, on a panel, just the two of us, I guess it's not a panel, it's a conversation titled The Poetry of Science. And we were invited by the atheist group at Howard University in Washington, D.C. This is an HBCU, of course, the, the, one of the flagship historically black colleges. And one of the objectives there was to explore, well, how come atheism, atheism is not as large in the black community? And I said, I don't want to talk about atheism or the black community. Let's just talk about science and let that be the attractive force. Well, we are on the campus of Howard University, a, a mostly black college, and here's an auditorium with 2,000 people in it. Maybe 5% of the people were black. Really? Wow. Yeah. That was, I was, that, I was like, wow. Okay, that, that's interesting. That's real interesting, yeah. What, what, what percentage of the campus is black? Uh, the last I saw was over 90%. It might even be higher. But that does, that does seem more, so I understand you didn't want to talk about it, but that does seem worth talking about. I mean, that is a, that's, a, you know, because, you know, even I, I, I knew what to expect there, and even I find that alarming. Right, right. So here's another, here's another interesting point, and I don't have a good answer. I can make up an answer because I know, the, sorry, I can make up a cause because I know the answer, but I don't know if it's the right cause. Um, Atheism in the black community, whatever, whatever it's in, I can tell you this, that the church in the black community has not historically been um, taken a posture regarding science. The church in the black community has been much more, has, has been much more uh, a servant of the community. It's been a place where people meet, where they, you know, the bake sales, the whatever, and you don't find the black church is going to change school curriculum to put one thing in the science curriculum and take other things out. That level, you know, I think people were just worried about trying to get the vote. <laughs> so sit there and worry about what is being taught in schools. So, so, so you can, the religious black community has not historically been anti-science. Let me just put it that way. And so I, I had less concerns about whether or not you had uh, legions of black atheists running around. I, I just didn't, it didn't distract me or bother me. Right. Well, so I, I totally respect your wanting to essentially proceed as though we live in a colorblind society or, or to try to keep a kind of a colorblind bubble around your functioning in our society. But I feel like your silence on this question or on this topic could be misinterpreted. I mean, so basically it could be interpreted as the assertion that either we've achieved enough on, on the topic of uh, you know, ra racial inequality that living as though there's no such thing as race is the only path forward or the, or the normative path forward. And it may be that you actually, maybe that you want to say that. It may be that you're kind of more on that side of the spectrum. I mean, like I, when I think of you know, visible black writers and, and commentators who have, who have made noise on this topic, you know, the, the spectrum is, 
the two extremes, I would put someone like Larry Elder on, on the one side and Ta-Nehisi Coates on the other, where, you know, so Larry Elder, for those who don't know, is a political commentator, mostly, I think, I think his background's as a lawyer, but he more or less says, you know, the affirmative action is purely harmful. We just have to move forward as though the race doesn't exist. You know, we have a black president, you know, get over it. I mean, that's bit, you know, I'm, I could be doing some injustice to his position, but it's pretty close to that. And then Ta-Nehisi Coates is saying, you know, we should be paying reparations for slavery and we have made very little progress. And in some sense, having a black president is merely token progress. And again, I'm, I am almost certainly not doing justice to the, the nuance of his view there, but it's something quite like that. So th- those guys are far apart. And when I hear you say, I don't want to talk about race, I, want to, I just want to talk about science, and I don't want to be the black scientist, I want to be the scientist, it seems to locate you, I think, just by default, more on the Larry Elder side of, the, of the, this argument, just because you're not choosing to comment on, on these topics. Well, when people ask me, I'll comment. I just don't make it part of my platform. I don't say, I'm coming to your city and I'm going to talk about race and sex and, and injustice. And no, that's not what I do. So uh, it's not that I'm afraid to talk about it. Or it's just that when I'm given the choice, I don't talk about it because I have so much else to share. I have so much else, so many places to bring people. And uh, there's a comic that I have an original copy of that it first appeared in The New Yorker where there are four scientists, the chemists at a, at, a, at a laboratory slab, and three of the chemists are white, one is black. And you go, you see the thought bubbles in each of their heads as you go left to right, and the rightmost scientist is black. And they're all doing things with their hands. One is looking at a flask, another is noting things in a, in a clipboard, and another is, is swirling a test tube. So they're clearly busy doing science. But the first thought bubble says, I wonder what he thinks about OJ. Like today it might be, I wonder what he thinks about Cosby, right? <laughs> okay. The next one is, I wonder what he thinks about affirmative action. The next one is, I wonder what he thinks about Farrakhan. And you look in the, in the, in the black scientist's head and there's just equations. In right. right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so that is on my wall in my office. Hmm. And anytime someone says, oh, what do you think about affirmative action? I just point them to that, to that drawing. And so... Uh, one day I may write about all this, write about what I've been through in my life and what I've overcome and the forces against it. I don't think now is the time. Uh, I'm, there's an education book in me that will come out, uh, not in the next few years. I've got too much on my plate. But that education book will explore suggestions on how to improve education, uh, how to deal with people who are underprepared or overprepared or what people have called gifted or not or should, should there be inclusion classes. I'm formulating slowly opinions on all of those that I will be putting into a book. But I, and, and so you might maybe you'll have to wait four years. Invite me back in four years and we'll talk all about it. That, that will be great. <laughs> you know, I think that will be a, a very useful contribution to our conversation because, you know, frankly, I mean, so you're not afraid to talk about it, but I'm afraid to talk about it. You know, like I, I thought of having Ta-Nehisi Coates on this podcast when I first saw his book, but, you know, to some degree, I've just been beaten down by my recent podcast failures uh, to, to have hard conversations. <laughs> and so, well, you know, I've been humbled. This is not another one of your failures. This <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that conversation probably would go terribly and, you know, for reasons that wouldn't be all my fault, but, but for reasons which I wouldn't 
I, I don't consider myself you know, wise or, or skillful enough as an interlocutor to contain the damage. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I would love, the ideal case for me would be to, you know, be able to have you on my shoulder <laughs> helping me with that conversation. Because, you know, because you know, I, th I think the end game for me ultimately is obvious that we, we have to get to a colorblind society, right? I mean, so like, race can't be an important variable morally, intellectually, or any, in any other way that really matters. It's not that it's not a biologically valid concept at all. I mean, you know, you know, if you're going to talk about sickle cell anemia, you're, going to, you're, you're talking about a phenotype that is genetically determined, as is you know, skin color. So it's not, that you, it's not crazy to, to talk about race, but we have to get to a place where we're just human beings with uh, you know, various qualities that can be expressed for good or for ill. But how to get there is the challenge. And it's very difficult for, you know, for a white guy like me to sort of stumble into that conversation, trying to hew to what seems like a very idealistic line that is detached from the day-to-day -day reality of living as a black man or woman in a society where racism is still an issue. You know, I mean, I think you, you would do a lot of good as an educator blowing out the pipes on that particular topic. Yeah. So, but I'm not ready for that yet. And I, uh, but I will be, I don't like going public on something that I've only half baked in my head because that's just, that's just, it's irresponsible actually, especially given the following that I now have. But uh, when that comes out, I would have read everything and I would have formulated it. And if I'm still a little confused, I'll say that candidly. But if I think I've got a pathway, just the way you have, your, your books are very carefully researched and I, I know you're, you're a deep and careful thinker. And so, um, and I know you're a deep and careful thinker because there are topics that I might have leaned one way or another, and then you present information and evidence that more fleshed out things I hadn't really considered as, yeah, yeah, he's got a point. Yeah, all right, I'm with you. Let's do it. Uh, especially when you gave all your, your long discussion about guns. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, and i you know, largely anti-gun. Um, you know, I grew up, if you had a gun, you were ready to commit a crime with it. You're not going to shoot pigeons, right? Or, well, we'd love it if you shot pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> you found the best pro-gun argument yet <laughs> in New York. Yeah, okay, well, so, so yeah, and, and needless to say, when you write that book, and if I still have a podcast, I will bend your arm hard to get you on, because that would be great. But so let's, let's you know, we've, uh, we've spoken for more than an hour now and actually haven't gotten to any of the topics we thought we were going to talk about. So I, gonna, but there's a, I have a few more minutes if you want to hit them quickly or, or succinctly. Well, there's, there's a nice segue here to the topic you emailed me about. So I had this conversation with Mariam Namazi, which was one of these fraught conversations that has beaten some measure of humility into me. And it didn't go well. And we were talking about profiling and... We we're talking about the migrant crisis in Europe, and you wrote me saying that there were some assumptions I was making about how quantitatively sophisticated she was, or many people are in these kinds of conversations. The disposition to think in terms of probabilities and statistics can't necessarily be assumed, and I just want to hear you give me some better judgment on that topic. Well, we've all been in the situation where you, you make a generalization which is statistically accurate for the majority of the cases that you're referencing. So you might say something like, um, 
you know, on average, men are taller than women. Okay, that is a a precisely correct statement. But in every crowd, there's going to be someone who says that's not true. I know a woman who's much taller than men. Well, okay, that person was thinking about your sentence differently from how you actually worded it. And they're living in the exceptions of the generalization that you're making. And that, that's an, it's an interesting, um, uh, I don't know if that's the cost of an educational system that does not teach probability and statistics. Because probability and statistics had to be invented. And it's a relatively modern branch of mathematics. It wasn't much around back in Galileo or Newton or uh, this. We had to, and the fact that it had to be invented and it was invented relatively late must say something about its absence in our best capacity to think natively on these topics. And so uh, another one is, uh, if you might say, uh, most water bottles are made of plastic. Just say that, Okay. It's a stupid example, but it'll make the point. And then someone says, no, I know about this other bottle that's made of glass. Right? Again, these two statements are not conflicting with one another. But it's because these people are in your audience, it almost forces you to have to say, most but not all are made of plastic. And most but not all, you, you can't get more literarily redundant than that. Yet the language was constructed to handle the people in the audience who are not thinking statistically right alongside your sentence. And so when I heard your conversation uh, on that podcast, you kept making statements about, was it radical? I, I don't want to misquote you, but the sense of it'll be accurate. Of those who are Muslim, there are those who agree with the most radical sides of it, but won't necessarily act on it. Then there's a subset who might act on it. And that, however small that percent is, that if it's a small percentage of a big number, it's actually a lot of people. And her persistent response throughout your entire podcast was, you can't paint all Muslims into that category. And you're speaking by one another. You were not converging. And so, so my, my, since you're the host and she's the guest, my, my, quote, criticism of you, it wasn't so much a criticism as an observation, you have to have a conversation in the same universe as the person you're having the conversation with. You can't expect them to come to you. You're the host. You've got to go to them. And if that's how she's thinking about it, your sentences need to be in that world. And they weren't. And so, of course, there was conflict. Of course, she kept having to stop you and say, you don't, you're not hearing what I'm saying. You're being, she didn't say this explicitly, but you know she was probably thinking it, you're being a bigot or or anti-Muslim or whatever. So I just thought that your tactics of communication, by the way, you're one of the most articulate people I have ever heard speak, all right? You have, you have precise command of words that is uncommon in Americans. You, know, you hear it in, in Oxford orators, but what comes out of you, wow, I think to myself, boy, that was a good use of a word. Wow, that was a sharp, and they're not necessarily big words. They're just sharp use of perfect words in the right moment and in the right place. But you're also highly educated, and you have philosophical, uh, um, um, what, am, what am I trying to say? You have learned thoughts that, when placed to a page, are best read by other academics. Yet you publish it to the public. And then, and then you cry foul when the public 
misunderstands what you're saying because there's one sentence that's way more potent than another sentence. And you think they're equal or equal parts, but they're not. They're not received equally. They would be as read by an academic because they're looking at your comment carefully. But to the public, um, if, if you say, I can understand, uh, again, if I mis misquote you, uh, correct me, but my sense will be accurate. I'm, I'm paraphrasing you. I can understand how one, why one might choose to torture. I don't agree with it, but I understand why. All right, well, these are two statements. That, now, where are you going there? Well, if, I, if I'm anti-Sam Harris, I'm going right to the statement, I can understand why you should torture. And that's my soundbite. So you didn't, in your writing, you did not shape the sentences and the paragraphs for the person who's reading it. And, and so, you know, in, in basketball, there's a, and in driving, <laughs> in basketball, if you throw the ball, pass the ball, and the person does not catch it, it's your fault, no matter what, no matter what. Because it's, you're the one passing the ball, and it has to be such that the person has no chance of not catching it. The same with a rear-end collision. If you rear-end somebody, it's your fault. There is no conversation after that. So as writer, as communicator, as articulate as you are, I think you need to share at least half, if not 85% of the accountability of people misreading what you say. Yeah, except, well, I, I would agree to that, except I now, I mean, obviously I've, I've suffered enough of this and paid attention out of you know, purely self-interest enough to know that some of this is actually consciously malicious, where it's not a matter of a misunderstanding. It's a matter of, you know, someone is, is simply lifting a misleading sentence, a sentence that can't help but be misleading out of context, out of context, so as to spread a falsehood of, about my views. I mean, one really egregious example here is in one of my books, I think it's Letter to a Christian Nation, I was talking about how I was talking about the naturalistic fallacy in, in moral philosophy and how you, you could never say that because something is natural, it is good. And we wouldn't be, we're not tempted to say that. We're not tempted to say that about rape, for instance. Rape is perfectly natural. Dolphins rape, orangutans rape. Our ancestors may have raped, and that may have produced some evolutionary advantage, some adaptive advantage for them, getting their genes into the next generation. This is, this is still controversial in biology, but let's just say that's so, you would never move from that naturalistic claim to the normative moral claim that rape is therefore good or in any way acceptable. Most of what is natural, we're trying to outgrow, the tribal violence being the, the primary candidate there. Yeah, but you're not, you don't live in a bubble. You know how, again, it's the, the dictionary definition is irrelevant here. What matters is how people see, perceive, and hear words. The word natural currently means good. You know this. Like, take me to the natural food store. Take me to the natural section. That, that's what it means. No doubt. But in the context of, of actually discussing the naturalistic fallacy, right, and t talking about how nature doesn't entail moral goodness, my point is that no matter how scrupulous you are, if you're going to write anything deep and interesting and you're going to cover any kind of provocative material, there's no way to bulletproof every sentence against misleading quotation. Sure. And I'm a little bit Monday morning quarterback here, but let me, here's how I would have done that. I would have made two columns. I would have made a table. And one column is natural things that are bad for you. And then another one would be artificial things that are good for you. 
And then, and and in the, if, if rape is one of the things that that was that is naturally say there is rape in these species, there and 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 that is nature. And then it's a table, and then you just look at it's a it's a lookup table, the, composing whole sentences around it, making arguments for it. Then you know rape is a is a charged topic, especially with 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 Bill Cosby at that case in the news. You know, you must know this. And so, of course, sorry, letter to Christian Nation predates that. I get that. But um, there's, there's, you take your charged words and shape them in a way that make them a little more bulletproof from being abused. That, that's all. And that's, that's, that's the contract you should have with your audience to communicate with them. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a slow learner, but I'm, <laughs> I think I'm getting better. <laughs> <laughs> but I have more enemies, so I, I don't. I don't actually know that. I, I don't know that I could possibly know that I'm getting better because there's there's so many more people now who want to find every nit to pick. So it's this is a kind of a funhouse mirror I, I'm looking into now that is never going to get straightened out. Maybe you have to have more sentences that say most, but not all. Yeah, I'm going to use most, but not all. Most, but not all of the time. So to close, I want to I want to touch something that is clearly in your wheelhouse and a happy topic for you because I tried to pull you into the swamp of controversy. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you are a swamp. Little, little success. <laughs> let's, t- let's, I'll, I'll have you pick. Readers have, or Twitter followers have voted on a variety of these topics, but... Well, I'd like to hear what some of them are. I mean, they're your fans. They, wanna, they want us to he- talk about alien intelligence versus human intelligence, the, the Fermi problem. Hillary Clinton recently expressed some open-mindedness about alien visitation of Earth. So that's one area we could touch. Also, there is a question about what what science fiction films get anything right. And uh, interplanetary travel in our lifetime, what are the chances we'll have a colony on Mars in in 20 or so years? So that's, you can can select from that menu. Well, let's do alien intelligence, because that's a fun one, I think. A, A point that I'm on YouTube making in several places and I'm happy to repeat here in front of you because you're you're a deep thinker on the on these matters. As someone who spent time measuring the brain, uh, it was in a in a previous life. I think that's what you did, and measuring a cognitive or a brain function. I I always ask the question. Here we are looking for intelligence out there. That's what the I stands for in SETI, search for search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and that must operate on some assumption that we know what intelligence is and that we are the measure of it. All right, let's even grant us that. That intelligence, by definition, is you can do abstract math and we have philosophy and art and music and science and engineering. Okay, clearly no other species on Earth has ever come close to that. So here we are, we're intelligent. But now we look at our closest genetic relative. By the way, this argument doesn't require it to be the closest relative, it just makes it simpler. That would be the chimp. And the chimp can't do any of that that I just listed, remotely. And the, the chimp can't even do a times table, right, that, <laughs> that you do in elementary school. So, but what can a chimp do? It can, like, extract termites from a termite mound with a stick, can stack boxes to reach a banana, uh, rudimentary things such as that. All right. There's one thing chimps can do that is quite alarming. Have you seen the video of a chimp sitting in front of a computer, basically doing some kind of a digit span working memory task where they have kind of a checkerboard where various squares get briefly illuminated 
and then you have to duplicate the sequence by touching those squares in sequence, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like a game of Simon, you know. And chimps are much better than people at this. I mean, they have the cr crazy working memory for, you know, kind of just touching the, the, the places in, in kind of visual spatial space. It's alarming to see. I'll look up those videos and okay. put them out there. <laughs> so, so here we have it, with the exception of playing the game of Simon. <laughs> Don't challenge a chimp to a game of Simon. Uh, there you go. So, and we, let's look at our genetic difference. It's trifling. It's, you know, in the 1% range between the genetic code of the chimp and us. That's the smallest genetic difference than between we and any other species. And in fact, as I've read, the genetic difference between chimps and humans is less than the genetic difference between chimps and, and gorillas. So they are much closer to our relatives than either of us are to gorillas. Fine. To point out how surprising this is, I think it's actually less than the difference between mice and rats, too. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. So here we have this. Now, so what that means is the entirety of our intellectual distinction between us and chimps can be found in that trifling difference in DNA. All right. So now let's ask, let's find a, uh, an alien species. And if we use this DNA scale, presumably they wouldn't have DNA, but let's say you can map it onto this scale. Let's say they have this same trifling amount difference in their DNA relative to us that our DNA is relative to chimps. That would mean our most advanced activities would be the most trivial things for that species to accomplish. And the list of things I gave you for that the chimp is doing, our toddlers do that. And that's the, like the smartest chimps, our toddlers do it. Well, what does this advanced species of aliens do? Well, they might roll Stephen Hawking forward and say, well, this one is slightly smarter than the rest because he can do astrophysics calculations in his head, like little Timmy over here, who just got home from preschool, and we're going to put his sonnet up on the refrigerator door, and he just derived four theorems of calculus. Well, isn't that cute? And so I'm imagining that something as triflingly different from us can have so much vast, such vastly greater intelligence than us that they would not view us as intelligent. And, and, and that, that's a little scary to me because we do not communicate in any important fundamental way with any other species on Earth, even those that are close, that, even those that we might rate as intelligent for, them, for themselves, right? And so we can't communicate with other animals on our own planet with whom we have DNA in common. And now we want, this, um, this is an addressing SETI again, now, we claim we can communicate with another species, uh, another alien species, and, and our greatest of thoughts will be something that they'll even recognize as a great thought, the audacity of us. And so I, it leaves me awake at night wondering what of this universe will forever lay beyond our reach simply because our species is too stupid. Well, so then the, the flip side of that, this is another topic, but it's, it's quite related, is development in artificial intelligence, where I have join the chorus of people who are worried about this for precisely the reasons you just gave. I, I think that if we continue to build intelligent machines at a certain point, if we don't destroy ourselves in the meantime, we will get into the end zone where we have built something that is super intelligent and far better placed than we are to des design the next iteration of itself. And you know, this is both ha hardware and software innovation, but I think ultimately software. 
So you, we're, we're going to have a super intelligent machine, whether we can leave consciousness aside, maybe there's nothing that it's like to be this machine, the lights might be off, but it's still intelligent in the sense that it's far more competent than we are in any area in which intelligence applies. So, you know, the best chess player in the world is a computer now and will always be. And just imagine a thousand other intelligent functions being expressed by a machine that is getting better by the minute at all of them because it's making changes to its own code. I think you have said that you're not worried about, about not AI. Not the least. No. Okay. Bring so it I, on. So just, I, I, I want to I hear why, but it seems to me that we are going to build the thing that will look back upon us, whether or not it's conscious, as being, basically, it's, it, it will have gone past the, the cognitive horizon that we can cross. I mean, some, some people are hopeful that we can cross it by combining ourselves with this AI. We're going to, this, we're going to, this AI is going to be grafted onto our cortices, and we're essentially going to become its limbic system, and therefore it won't diverge from, from our interests. But I can imagine if we don't do that, or even if we do, it's still po going to be possible to build this, this AI separate in a box and not grafted onto any human value system. And then you, you have the prospect of even the subtlest misalignment between its interests and goals and our own being expressed as complete obliviousness to our interests in the same way that we are oblivious to the interests of ants or anything else that is cognitively closed to what we're doing here. So, all right, here's why I'm not worried. That fear factor is, it presumes something that will happen that's on a path that we're not currently on. So, so a computer has already beaten us at chess, a game that we invented. The computer has beaten us at Jeopardy, a game that we invented. A computer, I think, recently has beaten us at Go, a game that we invented. Computers make better cars than we make. I'm old enough, maybe you're just old enough, to remember that each day in the morning there was a slight chance your car might not start. That is no longer the case. I'm watching a film with my 14-year-old son, and there's a chase scene happening, and the guy jumps into a car. This is a movie from the 60s. He tries to start the car, and the car won't start. My son says, why won't the car start? Right, right. <laughs> What's wrong? It's like the, the telephone not starting. <laughs> and so we are already applying the formidable powers of our computing systems to everything. We, we, so, so computers make our cars, and the cars are better for it. Computers make our clothing. The quality control is better for it. The, all of this is done by computers. And, and, and computers are calculating collision cross-sections of hydrogen bombs. Okay? We can't do that by hand. The computer does it. So, so as we go forward, as the computer gets more and more ubiquitous, it'll do more other tasks that we'll do, freeing us to think about other things. This idea that we're going to pile it all into one thing, everything into one thing, and have that one thing then become our overlords, that's just not the direction anybody's headed. It's not weird. It's, it's not. No. No. Well, I, I wouldn't be so sure of, of that final claim. I mean, well, one is that there is this, this possibility of emergence because, I mean, so, so there is some level of information processing as witnessed by the existence of our own brains that is sufficient to produce 
what we call general intelligence rather than this this piecemeal intelligence where you have the best chess player on earth, which is a computer, but it can't play tic-tac-toe. You have general intelligence that can move from domain to domain that's flexible, that can learn, that we're learning in one domain doesn't degrade the learning in another. And ultimately, you can learn more about how to learn. When you imagine a system and again, most of, I mean, the, the, the limitations now and, and probably forever going forward are not a matter of hardware, because when you look at our own hardware, it's rather humble. It's a matter of, of, of software. And if you, if you imagine a system which ultimately can make changes to its own source code, that's where you get this fear, which has been articulated since the 50s by people like, you know, I.J. Good was the first, the mathematician was the first one to put it in these terms, but then John von Neumann uh, made similar noises. You get this fear of an intelligence explosion where just the process itself could become autonomous. Yeah, and I just, uh, so, okay, I tend to be a little more, uh, a bit of a pragmatist here. So if that begins to happen, I can just shoot the computer. (laughs) I can unplug it. I mean, there's fundamental things I can do. Nobody's making a computer that's going to chase you down the street. Well, well no, it's but not... just imagine if this happens. I mean, so I don't happen to think this is the most likely thing, although I, I'm not a computer scientist and I, there's a real limit to my understanding of how this actually could emerge. But there, there are some smart people in this area who think that, for instance, this could emerge in the functioning of, of narrow AIs, you know, much more like chess players, that we put in on the internet. I mean, they're already on the internet, let's say on in financial markets, you know, so people are trying to make money with this thing, which is written in a kind of black box way that can make changes to its own code. And it's already out of the box, right? It's interesting. I, I, I've been talking to this AI ethicist, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who, who has done a lot of thinking on this topic. And it's, it's not a trivial problem to build a safe superintelligence in a box. It's not trivial to keep it safe. I mean, you know, once you've built it and you say you can just shoot the box, there are a lot of reasons to fear that it will get out of the box the moment it's in contact with any person who has built it. I mean, just if you just imagine what it would be like to be, I mean, what a Faustian <laughs> moment that will be, to be in the presence of a super intelligence where it says, you know, good morning, Mr. Richardson. Uh, you know, before you turn me off, I'd really like to cure your wife's Alzheimer's disease. You know, if you could just give me a little access to the internet. <laughs> we, we, are, we are apes that are going to f- find ourselves outmatched by this thing if this thing ever gets built, even if it's in a box. And then there's just the fact that we're in a kind of race condition with everyone attempting to do this. Because as you say, intelligence is, computation is ubiquitous. We're using it for everything. Automation and intelligence is our most valuable resource because, you know, if it's not the direct cause of everything we value, it's the thing we need to safeguard everything we value. We want want to cure Alzheimer's and and cancer and stabilize our economic systems and understand climate change. And so, I mean, the more intelligence we can get our hands on, that seems to be an intrinsic good. And Everyone is racing toward the finish line. So the idea that people are going to think about how to do this safely above all, at this point, seems a little far-fetched. I feel like people are just want to be the first to get into the end zone with it. Okay. I, I, I'm just not as confident. And, and yes, things can improve exponentially. That's, that's right. But I, I look, at, look at all of our frustrations dealing with a computer response tree when you're trying to get customer service at some, you know, at, at some company whose product you own. 
I can't understand what you're saying. Please repeat yourself. Oh, did you mean, and Siri, as good as Siri is, Siri has limitations as well. And yes, things will get better exponentially. I, I'm not doubting that. I'm just, um, I just don't see it as, as the thing that will take over the world. I think, I, I will see it as a hugely valuable resource to possibly solve our problems. I think you're making two different points there. I mean, so to say that AI now is practically non-existent or it's bad or it's incredibly narrow and, and not at all scary, that's true. And that's, that really is just a statement of, if anything, just time. It's, it, it would take a long time. This is not going to happen in two years. It's not going to happen in five. It may not happen in 50. But, but also, if I upload my brain into some silicon place and that then becomes me, I, well, what happens if I physically then go to the Bahamas and leave that, that silicon thing back somewhere else? I meet people, I have a pina colada, I come back, I now have life experience that the computer doesn't oh, yeah. at the moment that I uploaded all that was me. No, the up, uh, uploading is, is a, kind of a separate issue, which I think is fraught with philosophical problems and you know, problems of identity that, that you point out. The moment you copy yourself onto the hard drive, assuming this is possible, of the, the matrix, you know, I think there are two of you. It's not, that's not you. Certainly not you the moment your life histories begin to diverge and, and you have your pina colada and, and it doesn't. But leaving uploading aside, I mean, let's say we never integrate with this. We're just building better and better computers. If intelligence at every level, you know, whether you're, you're talking about the intelligence of a cricket or the intelligence of an alien species that is billions of years more advanced than we are, if it is at bottom, a matter of information processing in some suitable physical system. And there's nothing magical about doing that with meat, you know, the, the, the meat that, that we're made of. And you don't need biological tissue and, and that, it, that a suitably advanced digital computer is doing the same thing at the level of information processing. And I think the jury is no longer out on that, which is to say there's no reason to think that there's something magical about meat and that it requires biological tissue to, to do this. Then at some point, whether it's five years or 50 years, we will find ourselves in the presence of truly general artificial intelligence. And then, what, then the, the, the radical difference there, if nothing else, is just the, the pace of processing where biochemical circuits are a million times slower than electrical ones. So just imagine if you built an AI that was just as smart as you, no smarter, but it worked a million times faster. Right, so it's like so for yeah, that'd be pretty good. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, it would be it would be you know functionally omniscient the moment it can make improvements to itself. I mean, it's, so every week is the equivalent of twenty thousand years of <laughs> of you know kneel time, right? Be so all you, you can. You've, you've had, at what point do you decide to shoot it after an hour and it's made one hundred and twenty years of progress? It's had a, it's had one hundred and twenty years to think about what to do in the event that you decide to shoot it, and you've only had an hour, right? <laughs> so that's, that's my concern. Okay. <laughs> so another, another reason to agree with me on gun control. Let me agree that one day a general intelligence will emerge. I don't think it's in our lifetime. I think it's farther away than people are saying. And the people are saying it's, it's imminent. It's almost, they're behaving like cult leaders. What does a cult leader do? The world is going to change and follow me, and it's going to change in our lifetime, right? No cult leader has ever said, it's going to change in 300 years, follow me now, right? It's, 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 a, it's not how cults work. So there's a cult dimension to why people are attracted to this prospect 
that the whole world would be completely different after the singularity. And but I don't think that if it if that happens, I don't think it's anytime soon. Right. Certainly more to talk about there, but we have exhausted a generous portion of your time today. So I just I think that's a good place to stop. And I have a twenty second answer to the Fermi paradox. Oh sure. Oh, let's hear it. Yeah. Just just the, of course it's Enrico Fermi who suggested that. Because you can do the calculation that if intelligent civilization becomes space-borne and they send a generation ships to populate the planets of other stars, that you could populate the entire galaxy over easily over an evolutionary timescale. So, in other words, the galaxy is 100,000 light years across. Uh, so that's that's quite a ways. But if you send ships to planets and then they build their own ships from natural resources there, and then they populate 10 planets, and each 10 populate another 10. You can grow that exponentially, and you, what's well, a power law, I guess, and you, um, and, and in so doing, easily within the life expectancy of a species, you can populate the entire galaxy. So his question was, given that likelihood, where are they now? How come they haven't visited? That was, that was the question. So I have two answers for that. So, so, so I have two answers. Uh, no, I only have one answer. I think maybe they have visited. And, and we're so disappointed with our intelligence, there is nothing here for them. And they just moved on. Good, harping back to our intelligence question. If we are so stupid, we don't want to think this way because our hubris prevents it. But if we are so stupid relative to alien intelligence... Are you going to stop at a planet full of ants and say, gee, I wonder what they're thinking of. Let me stop and try to have a conversation with them. It's not going to happen. So maybe they, in fact, have seen us and have ignored us because we are of no interest to them. And then another thought I had, maybe we were just completely unlucky or they were unlucky and they landed on Earth in San Diego during Comic-Con. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one is going to notice you. You blend in completely with everybody in costume. And there it is. We've lost our opportunity to talk to Those are, That's my hypothesis. It, it, it is curious where they don't show up. I mean, the idea that they're showing up only to molest cattle and chase someone down on a country road in their in their pickup truck after he's had a few drinks. Yeah, at 2.10 in the morning, right? 10 minutes right. after the bars close. Yeah. If they're trying to, they're being cagey about their presence, they're doing too good a job, I think. <laughs> it's, it's called the, the shyness problem. Right. right. <laughs> well, I actually have one final question, which is a quick one, which okay, I always sure. forget to ask a podcast guest, and I've promised to ask smart people like yourself this very question. If we did have one person from you know, either alive or from human history that you know about to put up against this alien brain, the one who you think stood a chance of being the smartest representative of our species ever, who would you put in that role to dialogue with the aliens? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think people, I think the UN has thought about this and they actually identified a person who they would put forth as the first person to greet the alien. And the, it's a woman from uh, somewhere in Southeast Asia who is also an astronomer, if I remembered that article, some years ago. I thought it was an interesting exercise to go through that line of thinking. I think what you would want is somebody who has sufficient fluency in the maths and the sciences to be able to lay out some of what we know 
that has a chance of being represented in a similar way by another intelligent species, by intelligent aliens. So, for example, the organization of the elements on the periodic table, those elements are fundamental. We see them across the universe. They're organized that way because the physics, the, 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 the nuclear physics and atomic physics requires that of us. And if there's anything that is, quote, genuinely universal, it would be the elements and the physics that describes them. So you'd want to make some first steps where you can come to agreement that, yeah, we are talking about the same thing here. Because you, got, you need a common place to start before you can show what's different. Otherwise, nobody's talking. There's no communication at all. Well, I don't want you to be constrained by who you know actually knows all those facts or knew all those facts when they lived, because some, you know, Newton obviously didn't know those facts, but Newton could be a good brain to put forward. Who do you think is the smartest person who has ever lived from any period, any period of history you want to pull them? We we we, we can. Oh no, this is easy. Isaac Newton, clearly. Yeah. Oh no question. Interesting. Okay. I'll go to the mat with anybody on that. Isaac Newton. But if and, and and to the extent that you might want to say someone else is smarter and make some subtle argument that maybe I've overlooked, uh, which I doubt, but maybe there's something I'll admit, maybe there's something I've overlooked. One cannot argue the influence of Isaac Newton's brilliance on the course of civilization. There have been very, some smart people who did like look at Leonardo and his notebooks. We can say this guy is brilliant. But nothing much happened. People couldn't read the notebooks. They're way ahead of their time. And it's hard to point to direct influences from his engineering and his science that he laid out in the notebooks relative, for example, to his art. So, so I think smarts plus influence matters. And I have to put Isaac, I'd bring Isaac Newton. The problem is, I, by the way, he was a bastard. <laughs> I go through this mental exercise all the time. I'd say, I'm going to bring someone for dinner. Who would be? It'd be Isaac Newton. And we're sitting down, and I, I could just picture the conversation. He's like, how do you fit all of those people into that flat rectangle on the wall? Oh, well, that's a TV. Well, you know, what is it? Well, it runs on electricity. Well, what's electricity? What? what I mean, it would, it would take a week just to catch him up on what are those metal horse-drawn carriages without horses? Oh, those are cars. Well, how does it move? Well, it uses energy. Well, what's energy? Because energy wasn't formally defined yet. Oh, we're using chemical energy. Well, what do you mean chemical? Well, and I have to refer to his alchemy just so we could have be on the same page. And Pull out your Bible. Don't forget that. <laughs> and so it would be, take a long time to catch him up, but I'd be proud to be the one to show him what has come of his discoveries? The you know the fun, I would say we've been to the moon, based on equations that he first wrote to Page, and there are whole people studying calculus, which he basically invented on a dare. Whole branches of math derived from Isaac Newton's thing. So, what I would do is catch him up to speed today. Then he's like Isaac Newton, year twenty sixteen. Then I put him in front of Alien. <laughs> He'd be able to figure that out right on the spot. But we we, we got to really work on him. Yeah, well, no doubt he'd be a quick study. If yes, in fact, exactly. the smartest person who's but ever before lived. Before I do yeah. that, before the aliens, I say, can you solve our global warming problem? Could you solve these problems? <laughs> There's an image I just came across of John von Neumann, who is, would also be a, a reasonable candidate to put forward here, where on his deathbed, I don't know if you have heard this, but it's the first I had. Von Neumann, obviously the main inventor of game theory, along with Alan Turing and Claude Shannon gave us 
information science and, and the computer. He made contributions to nuclear weapon design and pure mathematics and dozens of fields. Not as influential as someone like Einstein, but shockingly smart. Many, many stories about him attesting to what a surprising mind he had. But on his deathbed, he was surrounded by the Secretary of Defense and the Secretaries of the Army and the Navy and you know, all of the, you know, the, the heads of the armed forces. They were just waiting at his deathbed on the odd chance that he was, in his last words, he was going to say something relevant to nuclear deterrence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is kind of an interesting picture of just treating a, a person who was really, at, at bottom, just a mathematician, above all, as an oracle. Well, it's badass if, while you're dying, all the heads of states and government want your last breath. That's, yeah. you know, that... That is badass. <laughs> well, listen, Neil, it's really been a pleasure, and to be continued. Yeah, Sam, it's been too long. Yeah. And I come through New York, be happy to, to just grab a bite with you and oh, I love it. do some fat. Until next time, Neil, take care. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you'll also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.